Hi, welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I have Nick Hanover and Eric Hoffman here with me to talk about the early period uh, work by the great Steve Gerber. Um, as you know, um, I'm one of the co-writers, co-editors of Steve Gerber Conversations from University Press of Mississippi. Eric is one of my colleagues who um, just did brilliant work on the book with me as well. And um, we thought it'd be fun to do a multi-part series on Gerber's career. So um, this is part one, discussing some of his work from the 70s. Um, and then we'll do another show about the 90s and another show about his work in the 2000s. Um, a lot of people uh, uh, either written or podcasted, including myself, about stuff like Howard the Duck and Omega the Unknown. So we thought it'd be fun to pick up his, some of his slightly more obscure work especially his work on uh, Son of Satan, Guardians of the Galaxy, Morbius the Living Vampire, and Shanna. Um, but before we start with talking about this specific work, I think it's important to put Gerber's time early on in the industry in context. Um, Eric, you want to kick us off on that and I'll jump in? Sounds good. Thanks, Jason. Uh, you know, Gerber, before he entered the medium, he was... He came into comics in the early 70s, and he was sort of part of that first generation of uh, writers and artists who uh, really started out as fans of the work that, you know, Stan Lee uh, and Kirby were doing in Marvel in the 1960s. And so he came into the industry not really with uh, any kind of a creative background. He was more or less involved in the fandom um, that was starting to get going in the late 60s. And he had his own fanzine, and uh, he was corresponding with several of the, uh, you know, notables in the industry, like Roy Thomas and Jerry Bales. And he had a background in advertising, He'd studied communications at several universities in Missouri. So he was sort of coming at it from this disenchantment with the business world, wanting to be more creative and more involved with the comics industry, which at the time was sort of in a state of, um, I wouldn't say disarray, but tr transformation. Uh, the, the lunatics were starting to take over the asylum, <laughs> as it were. And so it was sort of like a very fertile and adventurous time to be going into comics. And I think that was really important, that sort of freedom uh, for Gerber, because Gerber is such a unique voice and really kind of different from uh, a lot of the other writers uh, and uh, talents that were in the industry at the time, who were more or less sort of aping the Lee Kirby stuff. And I wouldn't say that everybody was sort of falling in line with a house style, but Gerber was definitely one of those first voices uh, to come into the industry and really start to introduce uh, topics and um, themes that were, you know, probably Stan Lee would have cringed at just a few years before. Um, and so I, I think that that's sort of like a really good context for what uh, he was fit, uh, sort of dealing with when he came into the industry. There was also, and I think Jason, you could probably speak about this a little bit more. 
uh, you could probably address this a little better than I can, but there was a lot of different genre work going on at that time. And a lot of that had to do with the loosening of the restrictions of the comics code that had sort of been in place for several decades by the time Gerber came in. And so he was sort of given these properties that were, you know, uh, kind of um, kind of hearkening back to the EC stuff from the 50s. Uh, you know, so there was some monster comics and horror comics and things of that, you know, ilk that he, you know, were, that were among the first titles that he was writing for Marvel. Yeah, I think it's um, important to say that Marvel was not a, primarily a superhero line. So I have up um, on my screen a list of the comics Marvel published in December 1973. They published 26 comics. Now of the 26, only eight of them are superhero books. Um, the rest are either sci-fi, horror-based, or barbarian-based, or westerns. So the line was really diverse. Right, right. And um, so it was, and also during that period of time, the uh, the role of the editors at Marvel was very weak. A lot of the times, especially for the lower selling books, the creators would be brought on and have a tremendous amount of freedom to do the work they wanted to do. In the hands of the, kind of the, some of the weaker writers, um, they produced some of what I would consider to be hack work. But under someone like Gerber, especially because Gerber was writing upwards of five comics a month at times. Um, he was producing work that was um, just really kind of very heartfelt and very much um, reflective of his approach to the world. Um, and it's, it's fascinating, actually, with this group of titles, because uh, Son of Satan and Morbius are like, I think, and we'll get into this later, kind of opposites of each other, but really kind of an interesting pair to have been released around the same time. Yeah, and I think at the time, Thomas Roy Thomas uh, was the editor in chief, and uh, Gerber had written a letter to him in 1972, basically asking him if there was any work available. And of course there was, because Thomas had, at the time, he was overseeing an enormous expansion of titles at Marvel. They were sort of throwing everything against the wall to see what would stick. And uh, so there was no shortage of work for Gerber, uh, who was clearly a talented writer. And I think Thomas was quick to, to, you know, sort of key in on that, that here was somebody who was whose scripts were really something different and something unique. Striking to me how very quickly he just became this really idiosyncratic fascinating writer and you see that especially in his early work on the man thing strip in the adventures into fear where it reflected his political views but also his views on society um although some of the early issues are awkward within a year or two um that series just gets to be really one of the most bizarre and fascinating comics of the era at times incredibly heartfelt um and in one of the uh, later issues of Man-Thing, Giant Size Man-Thing 4, uh, might be one of the greatest, most heartfelt comics of the 1970s. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't above having uh, 
barbarians climb out of peanut butter jars and an <laughs> incredible talking duck appear. Uh, and an uh, evil cow. And, a, and a, the hell cow. Yes. <laughs> uh, which is a great transition, I think, to his work on... Should we start on Son of Satan or Morbius? I'd be down yeah. for Son of Satan. Okay. You guys want to start with Son of Satan? Yeah, because I feel like that's such a personal Gerber book, especially because it's like set in St. Louis and there's so much of the, you can definitely feel the like advertising background coming into a lot of it. At least that was the feeling I got. Yeah, I could see that. What do you, what about it made you see the advertising background? One of the ones that's coming to mind is the, the uh, tarot card arc mm -hmm. which starts with a bit of rogue advertising or at least what everyone thinks is rogue advertising of the the student who's terrified because she's received the death card in the mail and then on the back it's an invitation to come to this woman's fortune telling operation which i thought i mean i know how it eventually turns out but i thought that was a pretty great gag with son of satan just being like this isn't something that i should even be involved with this is just some spam mail that you got yeah, another issue starts with fake uh, a fake newspaper front page to the four thousand holes. <laughs> the four thousand holes in Forest Park. I also love that. Uh, was it Crandall, the the reporter, who's like super super cynical about everything? Mm -hmm. Something else that's sort of semi autobiographical about that that I noticed is uh, that uh, the doctor uh, Catherine Reynolds. Uh, she she calls Hellstrom in to investigate a haunted communications building on the oh campus. yeah university and you know Gerber majored in communications in college so you know that was sort of a more or less explicit sort of reference to his background I think we I also like when they start showing like it's almost this Greenwich Village culture that's in St Louis like when they go to the he goes to have dinner with her at the cafe and there's that. Uh, Maynard G. Krebs-esque, like, beatnik weirdo that's there with him. <laughs> he, he loves the, the beatnik weirdos, yeah. I think there's really, like, basically three arcs in, in Son of, the Son of Satan run, and they're all just wonderful. Um, first of all, I think they all have different artists, but a great example is 1970s art, but also they're really kind of fun, contrasting styles. Um, yeah. the, fir the first storyline you're talking about um, is um, Jim Mooney. Right. Uh, oh, whose, work, uh, whose work I just adore on this series. It's just and so they, later, they later worked together on, on Omega, The yep. Unknown. Yes. I now have three pages from Omega, by the way. Three original art pages. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm jealous. Well, yeah, we and then he has Gene like Colan on there too, who who I always kind of think of as like the definitive Gerber collaborator. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And Very Colin said that he thought Gerber was his favorite collaborator. Well, I also like that Gene Colan kind of brings that like Warren magazine feel to it in that particular arc because the uh, if if I'm remembering correctly, Colan's uh, the one who is. With Hailstrom, as he's having this like internal battle over himself, and he goes out and he meets Spyros, 
who's actually Adam, like the original son of God or son of man, who's like uh, his face is all warped from sin because he's basically doomed to be in this limbo space, just absorbing all of mankind's sin all the time. And that to me looked like something that you would see in like creepy magazine. Oh, such a wonderful arc. Uh, yeah, that uh, that's oh, that's Mooney again. Oh, is that Mooney on that one? Yeah, that's Colin the, does the that, one after that. Yeah, uh, Mooney is, or Colin is the one before that. The the demonic possession storyline. Yes, which also has lots of face distortion. It kind of all blurred together in my my brain. Yeah, he does the demonic possession where he has to go to the apartment because the the girl her dad freaks out because she's brought home a boy. Mm-hmm. And he lashes out at her, which causes her to be possessed by that uh, she demon that keeps like bouncing from person to person. That was legitimately a scary story. And I think the combination of Gerber's kind of intensity of his writing and Colin's just gorgeous work. Yeah. um, Just really brings that story to life. Um, There's just this, this, um, intensely about the way Colin slashes up the panels and presents the close-ups um, and, and the wide panels in the slashing approach that really just accentuates the energy of it. You can just really see him at the at the heart of his game. I also, it's interesting too, because Gerber seems to have this thing about facial like uh, mutilation in his mm-hmm. works. I feel like that's like a running theme with him because that comes up in full killer a lot too and man thing i think has got a lot of that going on but it's interesting to me that in that one so much of what's going on is just like these tortured horrified like facial expressions as the the demon is going from person to person yeah he also uses that in sludge the malibu title and hard time for dc focus later on in the 90s. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about Sludge because I think that's <laughs> one of the most unknown <laughs> books he did. Have, have you ever read any of those, by the way? I have not. I have not. Gerber's one of those ones where I, I think I know his stuff and then I'll find some new corner of material from him. Like uh, the last time I talked to you on a podcast about him was when I like just discovered his 90s Fool Killer miniseries, which kind of blew me away in how prophetic it was and i'd never even heard of that one that was just like a random bargain bin discovery if possible i'd like to talk about specifically issue 17 this you know this we should clarify that this title they i think he did a total of 10 issues and it was in a title called marvel spotlight yeah an anthology title and it ran the year 74 75 so really toward the beginning of you know within the first three or four years and right in the thick of his most uh his most um prolific period with marvel and uh one of the issue 17 is to me is one of the um one of those moments i think where gerber really sort of uh, raise the bar for himself <laughs> for, <laughs> for just 
uh, total Gerber-esque uh, craziness. Uh, and the, the title of that issue is uh, 4,000 Holes in Forest Park. I don't know if you guys remember that. <laughs> yes, I love that one. Yeah. So 4,000 prairie dog size holes uh, appear in Forest Park uh, overnight. And and uh, there's no explanation for, for how or why they appeared. And so they sort of like... Uh, Damien Hellstrom and Catherine and Byron head out to investigate it. And that's uh, just as a side note, one of the things I love about Gerber's comics, and I didn't really get to, uh, we didn't really discuss this, Jason, in our introduction, and we didn't really get a chance to mention it in the previous podcast we did about him. But one of the things that's really unique about Gerber's comics is the level of attention he gives to uh, supporting characters, or maybe yes, if the yeah. superhero title, the non-superhero characters. He really get he really pays quite a bit of attention to those characters and really develops them. Where in another, uh, with another writer, they may just be sort of like you know background or one-dimensional. But he really adds that level of uh, of uh, uh, depth to those characters and it really does a lot to sort of uh contribute to the overall uh quality of his writing and 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 he really is able to make you really care about those characters uh yeah because like byron is like gets a whole monologue in there where he's chastising hellstrom for like essentially being a fake or having ulterior motives or like something while they're in the middle of a deadly time travel expedition back to Atlantis. <laughs> time travel, Atlantis. Did you really believe we'd go on believing this ridiculous illusion of yours? Yeah. Come on, <laughs> you've got us hypnotized. That's how you pulled all your freaky stunts. I love that because it's just like, I mean, I don't know how a normal human being would react to like all of a sudden finding themselves back in like some weird era with magic and sorcery and everything. But um, that, that at least seems believable to me that a human would be like, no, 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 this is, this can't possibly be happening. And you're doing stunts. Cause that comes back later, but like two random cops who are just like side characters later on when it's the, uh, the tarot arc where they're just like, do you really believe he can fly? I find it much easier to believe it involved mirrors. I don't know how that works, but basically wouldn't you rather believe he can't fly and he's just on like using mirror illusions to make this happen? <laughs> and and I like how he builds the Catherine Reynolds character too because she's immediately intrigued by him because he's unlike anyone she's ever known. She's this college uh, professor who teaches parapsychology and the supernatural. And here's this creature, this person who's um, ex exhibiting all these supernatural features and frankly is like incredibly handsome too. That first Gene Colon page of, of uh, Damon and his tuxedo is spectacular. <laughs> yeah. And he's always shirtless. And he's always shirtless. And you can <laughs> see the attraction on her face every time she sees him. And and it makes sense. It's just like, as you're talking about, it's like this very minimalistic characterization that just works. I mean, who wouldn't be attracted to that, right? I mean, he's the ultimate bad boy. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's almost like a reading the son of satan stuff in particular made me wish that more had been done with him since like he'll pop up but i feel like anytime he pops up it's almost in like a deus ex machina sense 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Warren Ellis did some good work with him evolving, like, I think around the same time as, like, Next Wave and Druid uh, and connecting him over to, like, the Bloodstone stuff. Yeah, I haven't read much of that work. Yeah, because there was a time where Hellstrom was, like, popping up as, like, a side character, almost, like, kind of, like, the way that, uh, 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 the way Etrigan is treated in DC, Mm -hmm. where, like, other characters would come to him for, like, problems, but he he wasn't really, like, around but um i think marvel tried to like bring back some of their magical characters in the late 90s or early 2000s because there was the druid miniseries and they also had tried to bring like blade back but um i just you know like he's just such a fascinating character that like i wish that he would pop up in i don't know like a jason aaron series or something now he seems to be more or less used as a plot device right yeah and i i kind of disagree with you i kind of am not terribly interested in him as a character (laughs) (laughs) why not well again i i i think we're talking about the three-dimensional uh you know nature of of the supporting characters in son of satan which really sort of grounds this comic and and uh, and they tend to ground all of Gerber's work, which, you know, I mean, for example, we were talking about the the 4,000, uh, the 4,000 holes in Forest Park comic, which, you know, as it develops, the holes get set on fire and then they kind of come together and turn into a fire dragon and 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 then they go back in time to the lost city of Atlantis so that they can commune naturally with this. Zared Ha and I mean it just sort of I mean it's almost like free association uh it's almost like pure surrealism that Gerber is throwing out there and a lot of his really great memorable runs have quite a bit of that going on I mean Jason I know you know we could refer specifically to the Headman saga of the Defenders comic for example but these supporting characters sort of ground that and 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 you know, you talked about that monologue that Byron and and how it is a realistic sort of uh, depiction of how a normal person might react to these things going on. And to me, it seems like Hellstrom is sort of one-dimensional. I I don't. There's just doesn't seem to be enough going on with him as a character to interest me. Uh, he almost seems to be as he is been used by other writers uh almost like a plot device and maybe not he's he seems to be more or less sort of the vehicle for all of the things to transpire and happen around him so i mean that's just my personal point of view (laughs) well i think that's kind of gerber in a nutshell though because i feel like that's similar to like how omega the unknown is treated because omega the unknown is probably the least interesting character in that series to me And even when he writes like uh, Incredible Hulk or like other characters, he he seems to be drawn to like the the divide between them internally more than like anything else about them. And Hellstrom's kind of like a perfect vehicle for that for him. But like I should clarify that what I meant is like to Gerber, I don't think Hellstrom is like, like an interesting character. But that's kind of like why I would be interested in seeing other people kind of pick up some of the stray stuff that he just leaves everywhere and run with that and kind of make more depth 
happen with him. Cause I, I agree completely that as far as Gerber is concerned, all the interesting stuff is like other people reacting to this weirdo. <laughs> huh. I guess I disagree. I feel like he's got such this, this dual nature to him that's played up in Gerber's first issue where he's, he, he's this kind of, they don't play a lot of it, but he's supposed to be this religious guy who's got this little literal devil inside him. And he's constantly at yep. war within himself. And we see it in the last issue also when he goes back and sees that desiccated version of his mother. Yeah, that was really sad. Yeah. And I feel like he, it, it, I, I agree with you, I guess, is that um, in the right hands, he could be this interesting, like, exploration of the dichotomy of, within ourselves of good and evil. Well, because he kind of even, like, he has that lecture that he gives to when he's in the police station and he's he's talking to everyone and he, he mentions that there are eight souls in the room and it's because he's saying that everyone has two souls that are at war within mm-hmm. them all the time. Um, and I, you know, I, I just think that's an interesting through line that Gerber is exploring because I think all the characters, I mean, all the comics that he's done that have really clicked with me have been confronting that because that's that's there in Fool Killer, that's there in Man Thing. I guess maybe not so much in Howard the Duck. I don't I don't think Howard Duck views himself as a character who's at war with with his own thoughts and feelings. But but I feel like Gerber a lot of times, and, and maybe that's because of like his advertising background. And his own relationship with comics where like he kind of like on one hand loved this like innocence about them, but on the other hand saw all the cynicism and then dealt with all these like horrible things in the industry and being mistreated. I guess my I guess maybe where I have a problem with the character is that the dual nature of the good and evil doing battle is a little maybe just a little too on the nose for me. But it is a little you know, blunt. You can, you can <laughs> Right. You can say that about a lot of Gerber's stuff. I mean, uh, he's not one of Gerber's failings, I think, is that he's not the most subtle of writers. What? And <laughs> Shocked to hear that. He, he's he's pretty he pretty much hits you over the head with his themes, for example. So I feel like he gets very about... distracted with stuff too. Like he he tosses out so many ideas in things, and he doesn't come back to like ninety percent of them. In my experience, Dude, that was like, my there's big... just so much going on. That was my biggest problem with the Morbius strip, especially, is that um, it fits so much of what we were just talking about. The character just feels more shallow. Um, the stories just seem to ramble, and I actually what I like about it in a way is how much the stories ramble and wander and meander. Um, it also just feels like Gruber just never lives inside the head of that character. Now, Morbius was one of the first titles that he wrote in Fear, correct? That was... Well, so I wanted to say that, but um, Fear number 21, the first Morbius, came out the same month as uh, Man-Thing number four, as well as um, the month after Marvel Spotlight. Sorry, one second here. Marvel, I think it's the first Son of Satan issue. So he'd been working in the industry for a little while at that point. Yeah, it was the month after his first Son of Satan issue. It, it feels so much earlier. I wonder if it was like scripts that he'd written 
long no, before I, that. I, I'm, well, I, I don't, I, I thought that he had written Morbius stories uh, for fear earlier. No, that's not what the chronology says, though. Uh, so, like, the Blade issue came out January 75, which is the same month as the second issue of Defenders. Okay. It is crazy, though, because, like, I agree. Like, it, it definitely, the Morbius stuff feels way more, not necessarily amateur, but, like, it, it doesn't have as much of his voice. I was just struck by how much it just feels thrown together issue by issue as if he just didn't care. I mean, I, I kind of feel him, though, because I have never been able to care about Morbius as a character, no matter what, and I feel like there have been so many attempts to make people care about him, and now they have a movie that's going to be about Morbius, and I'm just like, I just don't get it. <laughs> so I was just listening to the podcast, Wait What? Um, and one of the guys on there happened to be talking about Morbius, and he called it the dumpster fire of Mar Marvel 70s comics. Yeah, because he was created as a character that was meant to be a loophole around the CCA, right? Yeah. Yeah, because if he's a living vampire, he doesn't necessarily <laughs> suck blood. I know, that, I, know, I know that when he took over writing the character, uh, he took it over from Mike Friedrich, and I'm pretty sure that there wasn't any sort of... Uh, Mike Friedrich didn't really know where he was going with the storyline, and Gerber sort of had to pick up the ball and run with it, and I don't think he had any plan going forward with the character i think he was really just winging it and i don't think his heart was in it and i think it shows yeah i mean the first issue just feels like it's just like one of something happens and another thing happens and another thing happens and they're not tied together at all this little girl who looks scared and then has psychic powers and then turns into this warrior woman and then goes back to being a little girl and it's like what the hell well, is happening and the cult is, is there, and they end up being these extraterrestrial people. And it's just like this this bizarre, surrealistic, I think you called it earlier, storyline. And then there's a jungle cat at the end. <laughs> over a, over a six-issue period, there were something like five different writers and artists on that title. And so I think it was just chaos. And... Uh, when you're working, when you're trying to be creative within that sort of an environment or that sort of a creative, uh, I guess, uh, rock in a hard place, <laughs> there's really not much you can do with it or not much you can, you know, not many places that you can go with it. Wasn't that also like some early Gulachi art on that too? Paul Galassi did one issue. Uh, Pete Craig Russell did two issues. They're just gorgeous. Pete Craig Russell yeah. is on there. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts to me. And Frank Robbins. And Frank Robbins. Yeah. It's just like a, a lot going on. Uh, I was actually struck by a couple of the issues, just how much I enjoyed them for what they are. Uh, the second issue, um, Fear 22, he does, um, which has got art by Rich Buckler and Luis Dominguez. I'm not even sure who Luis Dominguez was. I think he was a, one of the Filipino artists. It has this kind of weird primal feel to it. 
almost like a, a childlike energy that's just like I, I, bizarrely fun. You know, I, I think one of the big differences for me too between those two series, since they're like spiritually connected in a way, I, I think part of it is that with Son of Satan, there's a lot of room left for the artist to do stuff because I feel like since so much of it is happening in people's minds, there's all these beautiful like panel breaking things going on and uh, a lot of different types of styles. Like, cause even though Son of Satan has a lot of different artists on it, it makes sense because like it all kind of fits with a different type of supernatural adventures they're having, you know, and Morbius, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel as planned. No, it all I almost want to say the the improvisational uh, nature of it is what makes me love the series so much. Yeah, just because it, it all seems so random um, and so made up, and and this is where yeah, I have this whole thing about Gruber writing five books a month and how it just kind of channeled his id. This is just happened to be the thing he was thinking about those three or four days he wrote this story. Right. And yeah, in a way, in a way, it is sort of freeing. It's it's almost, uh, you know, you could say, well, we sort of understood what he was up against, and he just said, uh, "There's no way I can surmount the, the 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 chaos that's going on here." So the only way to fight chaos is with chaos. Yeah. Well, yeah. so uh, on that note, should we talk about Shanna? Since I feel like that is the polar opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Shanna is an interesting one, and I think it's an early work, and it, it's interesting to me reading it again uh, how how fully formed in a way Gerber was, especially with that first issue. So many of his themes, so many of his uh, obsessions are present just in that one comic: um, political, social economic, uh, gender, it's all there. It's sort of as almost like a raw template for so much of the work that was to follow. Well, go on with that. Well, you know, I mean, obviously with gender, I mean, there's, there's Shanna's uh, playing against a lot of gender stereotypes. And it was the early 1970s, the women's movement was in full swing. Uh, so there there was a lot of it was very weighted with a lot of that context that was going on, uh, you know, around Gerber at the time. Uh, there's also the theme of sort of like an anti uh, gun or. Oh, anti, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it is very anti gun. She has like flashbacks every single time she touches a gun. Right. Uh, there's an environmental environmentalism. A, a theme that's going on throughout it. Uh, obviously, she's concerned about wildlife and the preservation of wildlife and and the environment of wildlife and and um, there's the you know the the bad guy of course uh, true to form with Steve Gerber the bad guys are uh, you know they're sort of like that the the capitalist a caricature that you know he would use to such 
great effect in Man Thing and then Howard the Duck uh, is, is there. So, I mean, there's all of these, all of these themes that are, I mean, there's almost four or five of them all playing out at once. And at the same time, he's telling this completely engrossing and, and compelling story that has a beginning, a middle and an end. It's extremely tight. Uh, it's it's almost like a textbook example of how to write a 22, 23-page comic. And I was, I was just really impressed by it. I, I hadn't read it in quite a long time, and then I had read a lot of in preparation for our book, Jason. You know, obviously I'd gone back and read every Gerber comic I could get my hands on. And then you had sent me a link to this, uh, and I went back and reread it. And I was I was floored just at just how how much of Steve Gerber was already there in 1972 when that comic came out. I think it's also interesting that it's like one of his other uh, collaborations with a woman writer too, because. Oh yes. Cause he would later, he, Mary screens was one of his frequent collaborators later on. Uh, but on this one, he worked with um, uh, Carol. Sewling. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Carol Sewling. Yeah, and um, that the friendship with Maris Green is um, like she still talks glowingly of him today. Um, in fact, it, I sent her a copy of the Gerber book. I, I, I'm not sure I mentioned that to you, Eric. Yes, you did. A, a, an interesting side note about Carol Sewling is she was the wife of Phil Sewell. Yeah. The big convention organizer of the 1970s. Um, and you, one of the things that's consistent about Gerber that's um, not really of his time is he has clear respect and appreciation of women as, you know, full-fledged people. And Shannon just really has a lot going on here. She just seems like a three-dimensional heroine in a way that someone like Sue Storm just never does in this time period. It's also interesting because I, I guess with Shanna... Um, I didn't realize this, but Gerber was basically just brought on to help with the dialogue and that Celine had done a lot of the like plotting and had put together the actual like structure of it. And I feel like that that's probably a big part of what helped it maybe coalesce and have a little bit more form to it than a lot of his other stuff. Um, because I, I kind of like seeing Gerber in that format of having someone kind of provide the narrative bones and help him with the dialogue because he's an exceptional dialogue writer i think where he kind of like loses well i guess the phrase would literally literally be lose the plot um happens a lot with him so but he comes back to the book um by issue five or so and like five is just a wonderful pretty tight storyline also it's got this kind of great kind of sexual flirting with this I don't know what to call it, like a Maharaja type character. And then she gets involved in this uh, villainous um, Necra who's teamed with the Mandrill and their whole thing is about sexual politics. Oh. Um, and that continues into his Daredevil run. And it's actually um, like a great storyline in Daredevil about basically um, women stirring up, uh, revolutionaries trying to stir up hatred between the genders as a way of kind of driving revolution in the in the world. Um. You know, and she's just this nasty piece of work who's just out to manipulate hatred in order to give herself power. Um, and the contrast with Shanna is is wonderful. 
um, because Shanna's this kind of peace-loving person, literary person, and here's um, Necro, who's just this being of kind of pure nastiness. And the two of them in opposition with each other just provides this really great um, counterforce. Like, she really would have been a great nemesis for her. Yeah, it's interesting that she's like a character who doesn't really want death or violence to happen and is trying to avoid it. Because even in that first issue, she she lets the, the poachers off with like a warning. And then she's not even the one who really kills the poacher. He gets trampled by the elephants that he's trying to, to kill, which I thought was a great touch. I also love the random Australian guy showing up at the end, just being like, what'd you do here, Sheena? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to me that, that he didn't come up with the you know the the plot of the first issue and just the additional dialogue i didn't know that uh it's interesting um to me uh because it is like i said it's there's so much of gerber in that comic i think you know uh the dialogue as i've said before with with gerber he he tends to be he tends to lay it on thick with with <laughs> Yeah, just a little bit, and, and be a little bit uh, um, le less than subtle with 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 his you know message that he's trying to convey. But I, I can't help but feel that uh, he he was the one who introduced some of the more more overt uh, political um, uh, dialogue that was in that comic. It's well, just so much. We certainly see the politics in a lot of his later work, whether it's like completely overt in like the, the early issues of fear when he's um, when the man th where man thing is battling Mr. F.A. Schitzt, the fascist. Yes. Um, or much less so in Omega and, and Defenders just a couple of years later when like the issue of urban poverty is front and center, which is still shocking to me. Right. Uh, he just really was a man who lived in his world. Do you do you two see that in Guardians as much? Uh, I know that they're like freedom fighters, but like it's it's so far removed from anything happening in current times. I mean, at least with that point of Guardians. Except for that issue where he's on the planet of the absurd, as they call it. Which is a great, seven, which completely resembles 1970s New York, which is which I think is just hilarious. And that comes back later in the 90s iteration of it too. I forget, but they have a different name for it. But yeah, I love that the, the Planet of the Third is great Gerber touch, and then also the uh, Cult of the Nihilist I thought was an excellent Gerberism. Oh yeah, from a uh, Son of Satan. Even right. though I could never really figure out what their deal was, <laughs> but but I just liked. I mean, that was. Just the idea of a cult of Nihilus was so perfectly Gerber. But it felt so appropriate for especially that character. Because, um, I mean, actually, if he had gone down the dark side, he would have become a Nihilist, right? I mean, yeah. He would have been all about basically consuming anything of value and just, just being this force. Destroying of, self. Yeah, yeah, immense negativity in the world. Um. Speaking of strong female characters, I thought Nikki in Guardians of the Galaxy was another strong woman. I love Nikki. She's one of my favorite Guardian characters, period. 
This I also like shame. Guardians is one of those ones where I I kind of I even though I I liked what happened with the annihilation incarnation of them and all that the character designs of that first Guardians team they're just so cool to me especially Vance like I just really love the whole like aesthetic cuz like some of it is fantasy some of it's like post apocalyptic you know you've got just a lot going on there and I always really like that whole style i think the premier issue of guardians marvel presents number three is like a textbook in how to write a first issue there's just so much energy from page one um and it starts with three pages of narration and then moves into dialogue or actually six pages of narration that moves into dialogue and um it just feels like a curtain opening up and a story starting to unfold as you as you dig into it and it, it just feels like gerber starting to really get the command of of all forces of his storytelling was gerber does anyone know what the impetus was for gerber to write that uh that team because they were introduced in a in a partial reprint title in 69 uh that arnold drake wrote gene colin again penciled it uh and then they sort of went away for five or six years until gerber brought him back for a couple issues of marvel two and one in 1974 and i'm just curious was it was it just uh does anyone know was he was he just assigned that title or did did somebody ask him if he wanted to do that team I don't know. No. All the essays that I had like found on it, just it's everyone saying that, just that how weird it is <laughs> that Gerber like came back to these and no one really knows from what I can gather of like why, but he, he really seemed to have an affinity for them because he kept coming back to them, right? Because they, yeah. they're in Defenders and um, right. he, he doesn't just like do it as like a, a one-off. He keeps like coming back to that well and adding more and more stuff to the mythos. Oh, that Defender storyline is so fun, too. Yeah. I, I literally just will start giggling thinking about some of those scenes. And this where, you know, the, the whole absurdity of the world these characters live in is so beautifully thought out. Would, right. Would that have been when he first worked on that? Was that before he had started writing Defenders? Do you all know? Or was that? So the, the Drake Cullen story was from about 1968 or so. Have you yeah. ever read it, by the way? Yes, I have. I have that one. It's I like thought one it was. I, yes, oh. I have read it. I think it was reprinted in the in the, the the Guardians collection that has most of the Gerber stuff, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So there were like really different characters in that story. Yeah, I mean, like the original incarnation of them. It, it's very, very, very bare. I mean, like, I, I, you know, he keeps, like, some of the basic bones of it, but he, he the reason I asked about the Defenders thing is because they, they almost seem like an early template for, like, what he would do with Defenders, and that's why I was, like, kind of curious about which came first, or if they just happened, like, simultaneously. Uh, I'm they... pretty sure that the Marvel 2-in-1 was... Uh, came out. That was uh, 74. It was while he was working on Defenders, or right after he started writing Defenders. 
And then he used the team and the uh, giant size defenders uh, in an issue of the giant size defenders um, in 75, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he brought them over to the defender series like pretty much immediately. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was, it's just so, I don't know. They're, they're just such an interesting team. And he, he seems to like really like these teams where they're put together by circumstance rather than out of any real desire to form a team. Cause that, that's the, the basic premise of the defenders, right? That they, they just fate keeps bringing them together. Right. Right. Although you know, a couple of them are friends. I mean, Dr. Strange and the Hulk have this unusual friendship. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that that's part of it too, is like essentially the Guardians are the final survivors of their various planets. And so they are kind of thrown together to stop the Badoon and then have their adventures. Right. I just, uh, I want to come back to that. Marvel Presents number three, the first issue with the Badoon. There's just some or first issue of the Guardians finally defeating the Badoon. I think it's such an amazingly interesting issue because it starts out with the, with the narration, as I talked about, and the battle to free the Earth. And um, they, the Guardians kind of lead this rebellion to, to defeat the evil lizard creatures who've taken over the planet Earth in the 32nd century or whatever. Um, and then... Um, it turns out that the invaders are all Badoon males and yes. the Badoon females <laughs> land in their rocket ships and basically take the men by the ears and say, come on, boys, you're done with this. Let's get out of here. You're going <laughs> to be dealing with us, eh, our anger from now on. Yeah, because they're the they're like the weak end of the species and they're like basically seen as like the pathetic ones on the Badoon homeworld, right? Isn't that what it like later turns out to be that the the women are like the developers and sorcerers and scientists and everything. Yeah, and I, I just thought it was like such a funny kind of clever twist. And then the issue ends with, a not ends, but it continues with a page of each of the four guardians at the time, um, all kind of finding life on Earth completely depressing after the revolution. Yes. And so they all have to kind of come back and go into space because what other choice do they have? And it's like, basically, it's one of these themes that I love about Gerber, which is despair is always around the corner, no matter how happy you think you are at the moment. I also liked all the stuff that he he does with Vance, because I feel like that fits in with a lot of the stuff going on in Omega the Unknown, too. Like with Vance basically kind of like uh, regularly going back to like nostalgia and his childhood and everything. Yeah, he makes a big point about Vance recreating his childhood bedroom in Socrates, New York. Right. Right. Yeah. It was a weird, weird one. <laughs> <laughs> and I also feel like it got like all the art in it also has that that real kirby feel to it too because really, you have like charlie who's like very much a kirby style hero to me and martin X, and then i guess all the mohawk too because that <laughs> also feels like a kirby touch to me there's a lot of kirby going on in there might be the best work al milgram ever did 
Yeah. <laughs> so Eric, we talked about the space orgasm issue in the book too. Right. Yeah, I think it's just the wackiest storyline too. Right. Well, you know, there's there's a whole sort of subplot of gender confusion going on, uh, which is <laughs> rather interesting and sort of ahead of its time in a way, I think. Uh, Starhawk switching from male to female. That gets really weird in the 90s series. That's one where I, I think it was Ron Mars that was writing the 90s one. Right. Jimmy Valentino starts it. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember who takes it over, though. But I just remember, like, reading the 90s one as a kid and just being so confused because you can tell that Valentino is, like, trying to figure out what to do with this character. And I think eventually they get separated. Like, they actually become two separate beings, if I remember correctly. I had trouble figuring out what he was getting at in their relationship with each other. <laughs> it's it's got some it's got some weird weird vibes. In and general. I kind of don't want to know what he had in mind. In a way, I kind of like the yeah. fact it's just a weird little mystery. Yeah, and yeah. It, it just seems like one of those ones where it's like a typical Gerber thing of like, I'll deal with this later. I'm just going to like put this happening in the background. <laughs> yeah, I that's sort of. As you were saying before, but he just sort of he introduces things without, I, I think, any real um, plan. Uh, I think you know he one of the things that probably kept his interest as a writer and handling so many different titles is maybe seeing what he could get away with, uh, or what he could, you know, what would what he could make work. Uh, he's really a great experimentalist in that way. Yeah. Um, sort of always challenging himself with these scripts. But, you know, and the 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 unfortunate side effect of that is that it doesn't always work and, and you don't always pull things together. And you do every once in a while end up with the elf with a gun. And uh, <laughs> it's just, it just sort of remains there as this, uh, total absurdity and um but i think that's part of the fun of reading a, a gerber comic in a way is is sort of it's a ride and not every twist and turn is gonna work uh but you sort of have to appreciate it on its own you know for its on its own uh, uh terms i think that's part of what's interesting about reading later gerber too by later i mean 90s and 2000s gerber because um, he's much less experimental, much more professional, and the stories just take on a different uh, attitude at that time. Yeah. Like, like clearly in Fool Killer, for example, he's setting up stuff in issue one that's going to pay off in issue seven or eight. Um, and when you look at the book, you can clearly see him think, having thought the whole thing through. And... I think that gives the book more power because we really see like that particular book. We see the fall of this man who was already on the edge and we can see it step by step happen. Um, whereas in the seventies Gerber, it just feels like everything just is kind of tumbling one thing after the next in this unpredictable way where, you know, you feel like you're just watching the avalanche happen. Yeah, you definitely never knew what was going to happen next in any Gerber story. 
I think a lot of that has to do with Marvel at the time, in a way, not not just the greater sort of zeitgeist of the 70s, which obviously was a very experimental time in American pop culture, but I think also specifically with what was going on editorially within uh, Marvel. And it, I, you know, there were editors, but it was sort of that time when people were more or less editing their own books and there wasn't, you know, it was pre-shooter and, uh, you know, there wasn't that top-down mentality uh, at Marvel and it was sort of, you know, let's see what we can do. And, and I don't think there was uh, as much on the line because, um, you know, it was the seventies and, and this, this was in the mid seventies. So there was uh, a recession going on and uh, I don't think Marvel was as profit driven as, as they might have otherwise been. Uh, so I think that that created an atmosphere where Gerber thought, well, you know, I can just sort of do whatever I feel like doing really. Nobody's telling me there's no gym shooters around to tell me, no, you have to do this, this, and this. And, and, uh, and then later on, I think as it became a more corporate environment in the eighties and nineties, that, that, that couldn't help but have a, an effect on Gerber's writing. I don't, I think it was sort of inescapable. He also sort of went through that period in the eighties where he was writing for animation, which was obviously a much more corporate environment than comics were. And well, he I really succeeded over there too. He wrote some truly amazing GI Joe episodes. Yeah, and I can't help but feel that that sort of storytelling, those sort of storytelling restrictions, didn't have an influence on his writing for comics when he eventually made his way back in in the post, especially in the post uh, shooter uh, Marvel in the late '80s, and then and then of course and you know the work that he did again for dc and and uh and uh in the early 90s with the indies like malibu yeah because hard time has a discipline to the writing that really adds to the storylines um, right it was done under the dc focus line and i don't recall who was the editor of that imprint um no, I don't either. Uh, but to me, I I, I want to. I, I don't necessarily find fault with him growing and evolving. In fact, I think if he had stayed the same throughout his career, he probably would have been self-limiting. Um, I think of his of him being true to himself while still being more professional. I think in a way, if, uh, if we were to complain about him losing that edge, it would be like complaining about a band. Um, losing the energy they had in their first few albums when they're in their, you know, when they get into their thirties and forties. Well, so you're just a different person fundamentally at a younger age than you are when you get to be more mature. Well, certainly you, you would be hard pressed to say that, uh, you know, for example, fool killer doesn't have some of his most. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping someone other than me would bring it up. <laughs> also from you guys' own book, it's Andy Helfer that, put together that line oh we should okay. know that too wow thank you very andy, much andy helper yeah. andy helper together focus that's what it says from uh i'm trying to figure out which page this is of your your book but it's funny because it, it's multiple levels for you here jason because it's it's from an interview in your book and it 
comes from an interview that was originally on Comics Bulletin. (laughs) (laughs) So you should know this, Jason. Wow. Now I'm really embarrassed. No, no. I mean, like, how would anyone just remember that? That's, uh, but yeah, that was. Uh, 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 You know, Nick, I should know these things. You would not be surprised (laughs) if I actually didn't know this. Yeah. Well, Andy Helfer was a great editor and he was also a really good, really good writer. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that I think that that his his hand in, in hard time probably shows a little bit now that I now that I think about it. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, definitely there's uh, even in late Gerber, there's still the same many of the same uh, themes uh, that he, he was interested in pursuing in the 70s. It may not be as freewheeling. Uh, it may be more professional. But I think, like you said, Jason, that that professionalism uh, has its own sort of experimental aspect to it and and uh, how he could work within that sort of uh, rather more corporate uh, mentality and still produce a work like Fool Killer is perhaps a testament to his ability as a comics writer to really push the envelope, even in the most well, maybe not the most restrictive of atmospheres, but certainly more restrictive than Marvel was in the 1970s. I, I firmly believe that Full Killer was not edited by a single person. It says Craig Anderson and Tom DeFalco, but I refuse to believe that. That, <laughs> that seems like a quintessential unedited comic. That Who comic, are those? That just haunts me sometimes. If I start thinking about that, I just I can just lose myself in thinking about it because that's just such a spooky intense book it really is yeah we really the three of us really need to uh just talk about fool killer alone in a subsequent (laughs) (laughs) i am always down for that as jason will tell you uh yeah we did it we did two hours on that with daniel Olkin, though yes (laughs) it was sort of you know one of his first uh, original characters too. I mean, to put it within that historical context, he was a a supporting character, a guest a guest starring character in Man Thing. Uh, you know, in during the period that we're talking about. Now, granted, the Fool Killer in the '90s is a different person, a different character. Who's but he's mentored by the Man Thing. Right, but but I mean, this was a character that he had sort of had in his. Uh, in his blood since his time in Marvel in the 1970s. So, you know, very early on in his career. So it does have that... Gerber-verse, as I started to think about it, with Richard Rory and some of the other characters who just seem to always pop up over and over again. Jennifer Kale. Oh, yeah. Jennifer Kale's... I I gotta ask you, Jennifer Kale just reminded me, what is the deal about women with metal tops on their bikinis? What? Do you know, it's like there must have been six different women who had metal bikini tops in these comics. Like, like, was that a thing in the 70s? I think it's kind of like the 70s equivalent of the 90s fixation on like the girls wearing shorts with the thong coming up. Because every 90s comic has that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's I like always their equivalent of that. I always think of Red Sonia, but yeah, I, I don't know. 
It's like every time you turn around, other than in Guardians, like every practically every other issue, one of these comics has the women in the in the metal top bikini. And I'm like, okay, the first couple times, maybe it's a coincidence, but over and over again, like, what is he trying to to imply here? Is this a fetish of his at the time? Is this something well, Marvel would do? He was the artist. <laughs> yeah. Because Gene Cullen was on, wasn't he doing Red Sonja too? Did he do Frank Thorne? Oh, okay. Gene Cullen never did any Red Sonja or any of that. Not as far as I know. Oh. because he looks like he could do it, so I guess that's why I I thought that because it's got some of that that Conan feel in the art. But yeah, I don't know. That's okay. a you'll have to do a book on that now. <laughs> one last just... thing about Gene, one last thing about Gene Colan, and I. I was just thinking about this, uh, but uh, Gene Colan, um, he created with Mark Wolfman the, the Lilith character that Gerber ended up writing. Uh, he also co-created the Guardians of the Galaxy, and I'm wondering if that might have been uh, what led Gerber to write those, that he was enlisted by Gene Colan. Oh, that would, that would make sense. I, I'm speculating, but it's an interesting coincidence. I guess really no one that. who was involved in those decisions at that time, other than, I guess, Tony Isabella, would still be around. Like, in terms of, like, interviewing someone to find out. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Uh, so let's, let's start wrapping this up. Um, All right. <laughs> do we recommend any of these four comics to someone who hasn't read them? I definitely recommend Son of Satan. If, if for nothing else, the art alone, I think, makes it worth it. And Shanna. Yeah, I would recommend those two as well. I, I, I'm hard-pressed to recommend uh, the Morbius stuff. Uh, or even, as we didn't talk about it, but the Dracula stuff. Um, they're banal characters. I don't think Gerber was much interested in them. Um, there wasn't really a great uh, cast of uh, supporting characters for him to sort of uh, latch on to, and but but the but definitely the Sh Shanna the She Devil and um, the Son of Satan and 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 the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, work that he did are definitely highly recommended. Uh, you know, deep cut minor Steve Gerber work from a very, very prolific period, uh, his most prolific, and definitely worth a look. I don't think, I, I know the Guardian stuff has been collected. I don't know if it's still in print. I know the Shanna stuff isn't been collected, and I'm pretty sure the Son of Satan, uh, unfortunately, was never collected in the paperback that I know of. And You guys might be able to correct me on that, but well, I think all some of the Satan collected. stuff was collected like very briefly because uh, I, I looked it up and I, I think it's like pretty hard to get now. And it might have been part of like a uh, Marvel Spotlight collection, not just like Son of Satan, but yes, it was collected as Son of Satan Classic. Oh, okay. So, but it's out of print. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's even remotely in print now. And it collects like all of it. It's not just the Gerber stuff, but um, and then I think that the Guardian stuff that he has, the two collections on that are not 
in print, but I think the Guardian stuff and Defenders is still in print because Defenders seems to stay pretty regularly in like omnibus and classic form. I think yeah. um, the Essential series has several. Essentials, yes, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think the Guardian stuff is still in print as like the event. I think they're called the 27th, 25th century Avengers or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, the, yeah, and there is a, a great final issue. Son of Satan run, spins off to his own comic and uh, only runs eight issues, but Son of Satan number eight with uh, uh, just unbelievably gorgeous art by Russ Heath is um, really highly recommended. It's on Marvel Unlimited and it's it's really good and dark and spooky, a little bit ahead of its time. Um, there's there's scenes that feel like the later Hellstrom book that you were talking about, the Warren Ellis series. It really oh, yeah. Yes. Um, so that said, I don't think it's as good as Omega or Man-Thing or Defenders. No, I mean, it's kind of hard to top any of that stuff. Right. Or Howard. <laughs> or Howard. Yeah, yeah. yeah Howard still stands up. Although, you know what was interesting to me, too, is that I feel like of these, Son of Satan in some ways felt the least dated, which yeah. is kind of weird. I don't know if that's yeah. because, like, 70s horror stuff is, like, kind of, like, the Baroque 70s horror is, like, back in fashion now or, like, why. But that one didn't feel as dated to me. Because even Shanna, like, I like Shanna, but it, it felt very jungle action. Uh, it's funny. I was thinking as I was reading the demonic possession storyline, especially like yeah. I could see that as an episode of a Netflix series. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. With or like a. Uh, or and, and the the inherent horror of this demon taking over an entire family. is timeless. Yeah. Yeah, it's very it, it, it's. It's very uh, effective storytelling too, and and he really adds a lot, uh, sort of psychological dimension to it that's really interesting and I think penetrative. 